Hello and welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Dane Kramer, and this is my very first recorded podcast ever. Issue number one. Thank you for tuning in. I'm real excited to kind of kick things off and uh, release this podcast and um, release this show. I'm excited about it. There's some things that I want to talk about. Uh, maybe some guests in the future that I'd like to invite to be part of this show. So I've got I've got a lot of high hopes, and uh, we'll just see where this whole thing goes. Let me first start off by an introduction. Again, my name is Dane Kramer. I live in uh, Western Pennsylvania. Um, I have worked as an investigator now for over 30 years. That's my profession. I'm also a Christian, as the name might suppose, um, the thinking Christian name. And I was a pastor for 11 years. Uh, After 11 years, I left the pastor to do some missionary work, both uh, nationally and abroad. Uh, After doing missionary work with my wife, came back and was looking for something to do, something to kind of sink my teeth into ministry-wise. Didn't necessarily feel led to the pastor, but I wanted to do something. And so the Lord opened up a door with jail ministry, and I've been doing jail, well, I've been doing prison ministry for probably, wow, 15 years now, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, as a regular um, volunteer chaplain at the the local county jail here, I've been uh, for about five plus years going in and leading Bible studies at least once a week, sometimes more. So that's where I am ministry-wise. Um and I developed this podcast. This idea came to talk about um, issues that relate to Christianity, issues related to eh, just life in general, I suppose. But I want to take a kind of a pragmatic a- approach to some of them, um, or to, to all of them, actually. I consider myself a pragmatist. As I said, I'm professionally, I, work, I have worked as an investigator for over three decades. And so pragmatism is really just sort of um, where I'm at in terms of how I approach the world, just thinking things through. I know sometimes people come to Christianity, come to their faith, and they kind of think they have to check their brain into the door as they become Christians. And that's sad. Uh, I know some Christians probably have checked their brains into the door. And that's really sad because Christianity is not a plea to stop thinking. And matter of fact, I believe it's quite the other way around. I think we are encouraged to think. Uh, some might think, well, Christianity, isn't that about faith? Don't we just accept things by faith? And yeah, to a degree, that is true. We do accept things by faith, and faith is central to Christianity. But, you know, if faith alone, just believing something to be true based on faith, you could be right or you could be wrong. Um, the faith doesn't make something right, in my opinion. Um, something is right uh, objectively. It's, it's right outside of whether you believe it. For example... If I believed, if I had all the faith in the world that I could fly, and I climbed up on top of a tall building and, and jumped from that building, my faith is not going to actually cause me to fly, because faith won't, in my opinion, change the reality, and the reality is I can't fly. So all the faith in the world, uh, the the solid faith, the, the, the believing without a doubt that I could fly, won't cause me to fly. Um, and so... Putting your faith or your trust in the wrong things or things that are not true are not wise. And so I think we need to think through things. We need to think about things. We need to uh, apply logic and reasoning, which is um, something I believe God has called us to do. 
and has given us brains to do it with. And so I think we need to apply that even to matters of our faith. Now, the show, The Thinking Christian, is not just about Christian ideas and Christian concepts, although it'll be centered mostly on that. I believe that uh, the the non-believer, someone who is skeptical of faith, might also be engaged uh, by walking through some of these thought processes with me. So I'm not limiting my audience, obviously, to the believer only. I would encourage anyone to go out there and just to think through some of these issues. Maybe you'll reach different conclusions than I have. That's okay. I'm just this is my show, so I'll tell you the conclusions that I've reached, um, and that's uh, that's sort of what this show is about. Now today, I'm going to talk about why I'm a Christian. Um, you know, I'm a Christian, and I have been all of my life, uh, basically. I guess you could say, um, but I'm not a Christian simply because I was raised in a Christian home. I'm not a Christian simply because I had Christian parents, which I did, uh, or Christian grandparents, which I did. It's not that I was raised in a community was sort of couched in Christianity, which it was. All those are fine, and, and I suppose the early experiences of our life will kind of formulate our thoughts regarding you know where we're going to go with uh, certain items and worldviews and so on and so forth. But I'm a big boy now, and I can think for myself. And so the conclusions that I have reached regarding my worldview are separate than the – in a sense, they're separate in, in a sense that they, were, they didn't come from the way I was raised. And I'm going to try to explain that to you if I can. All right. So why am I a Christian? Um, I think it's a good question to ask for anybody. Why are you what you are? Why are you – an atheist, an agnostic, uh, a Christian, a Buddhist, uh, a Mormon, a Muslim. Why are you any of those things? I think we should all ask those questions and be able to provide some sort of answer to that question. All right, so why am I a Christian? Why am I not a Muslim? Why am I not a, a Buddhist? Why am I not an atheist or an agnostic? You know, I think we need to kind of be able to answer that question about whatever kind of worldview we adopt as our, our own. We need to think it through, and we need to be able to just provide some sort of answer, I suppose. Um, and and I have my answers, and I have my uh, reasons for being a follower of Jesus. And I could say that those reasons that I have are based on my conclusion of looking at all available data uh, all of the evidence that we have available to us regarding the claims of Jesus. Now, let me, uh, and especially what I believe to be my conclusions on an empty tomb. If you're a Christian, you probably know where I'm going with this. If you're not a Christian, you'll probably still know where I'm going with this, but just bear with me. Let me go back. About uh, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus, he was from the town of Nazareth uh, in the northern sections of uh, then Palestine, which would be Galilee. He he came on the scene rather uniquely and uh, quickly made a name for himself by doing some things that um, were odd, (laughs) to say the least. At the the best, they were quite miraculous. Now, when Jesus was asked about what he was doing, he, well, let me give you an example. In John chapter 2, one of the earliest occasions, Jesus sort of caused a ruckus in, in the temple in Jerusalem. And when he was challenged about this, um, the religious leaders, the Jews, they came up to him and they said, show us a sign. I mean, you're in here causing a ruckus. You're, 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 you're doing all of this stuff. So how do, we know we, how do we know who you are? Now, really, what they've asked is a, 
legitimate question. Someone makes some sort of outlandish claim or at least some sort of bold claim should have some reason for you to believe that claim is true if it's of any value. And so when they came to it and they said, what sign do you show us? This is John chapter 2, verse 18. What sign do you show us that you are who you claim you are? Now, what Jesus said is sort of... Um, cryptid in a way, uh, enigmatic. I mean, in a sense, although it's not hard to figure out. But what he said was in verse 19 of chapter 2, John, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, the Jews thought he meant the temple in Jerusalem, um, you know, Herod's temple that had been sitting there in, in Jerusalem. But John is really quick. John, who wrote the gospel, is, is real quick to, to add his commentary and saying he wasn't talking about the temple, the building, but he was talking about his body. And so what we can understand that what Jesus meant by this is, you know, basically he said, kill me, and in three days I'll come back. I'll be able to raise myself back up in three days. He said, I will raise it up, verse 19. Destroy this temple, I will raise it back up. And now this is not the only time he did this. Uh, there are other occasions in his ministry where he was sort of challenged also with the same thing. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 is another one I can think of where the Jewish leaders came to him again and said, listen, show us a sign. We, we want to know who you are. Make it clear so we can believe or reject you. Give us a sign. And again, it was sort of cryptid, but he said, um, he said in verse 40 of Matthew chapter 12, he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the night, or in the, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, of course, of course, was a story that all the Jews were familiar with, the story of uh, this prophet. Um, and he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I will be in the belly of the earth for three days. Again, it's, it's obvious that what he's talking about is a future death and resurrection, basically saying, kill me, three days later, I'll rise up. Now, think about that claim. That's a remarkable one. I mean, it is. It is. Uh, it's it's an incredibly remarkable claim to make, and really one I would think that would be extremely hard to back up. You know, but but he Jesus really raises the bar here with the test of divinity. You know, if anybody claims to be divine, I'd say put them to the Jesus test. You know, die, and then on your own power, on your own, just will yourself back alive. Um, uh, there's a report out of India from uh, 2014, a, a guy, I, I, Ganesh Yogi, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'll, I'll put a link uh, to, this, to the article. In 2014, uh, he claimed that he could uh, raise himself back from the dead. And to prove it, he drank some poison, and I think he had um, like snakes bite him or something like that. And he did. He died in front of a crowd of people. He actually died. Um, and lay there dead. Um, and he said in three days that he would come back from the dead. Um, days later, he still was not back and his body started to rot. To rot and, and eventually, you know, he, there were tests applied and there was no brain waves. There was nothing. The guy was dead and he eventually was, was, was buried. Um, 
I'll give him credit for this. He at least knew what the ultimate test would be. Uh, now he failed the, the test, and so there's no reason now to, to, to suspect anything that he said was you know any more valid than anybody else. The guy didn't wasn't able to produce, but Jesus gave himself the same test uh, earlier than that guy did, of course. But Jesus said, "I'll die, and then under my own power, I'll just come back alive." Now you know there are some people who can go to bed at night. And they can say, you know what, I'm going to wake up at 5.30 in the morning. I'm just going to will myself awake. And they can. And again, in the morning with no alarm, they can just kind of their, I don't know, their internal clock kicks off. And they can sit up and get out of bed and you know, start the day. That's one thing. But we're not talking about sleep. We're talking about dead, where you're dead. Rigor mortis has set in. You know, the, the brain waves have stopped. The blood stops. The heart stops. Everything stops. And the body is truly dead. How do you will yourself alive after that's happened? I mean, anybody who could do that has got my attention. Anybody who could make themselves come back alive after being dead for that prolonged time frame has got my attention. Okay? So when Jesus was asked about his authority, when he was asked about why anybody should believe who he was, he pointed to his resurrection. Just as Jonah was in three, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so I will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. You know, that's, that's, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. So the big question is, was he able to deliver? Could he do that? Now, um, Jesus' life is documented not just in Scripture. We have other non-biblical sources that document um, that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, um, that he made certain claims about himself, or at least claims in ministry of of healing and so on and so forth. We have Josephus, who's a a Jewish historian from uh, right around the the, uh, late 1st century, early 2nd century. We have Tatius, a Roman um, historian who also recorded information about uh, Jesus. And from these non-biblical or extra-biblical sources, uh, it, it can be no doubt that Jesus existed. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who is a, a modern-day New Testament scholar, not a Christian, or at least not certainly not an Orthodox Christian. I, I assume he'd be agnostic or perhaps atheist. I'm not sure exactly where he stands, but he's certainly not a Christian. He denied the Christian faith, but he's a New Testament scholar. Even he would insist that there could be no doubt that Jesus existed. There can be no doubt that he was sentenced to death and that he met that death on a cross. Those are the things that even Bart Ehrman, a, a, a skeptic of the New Testament, would agree on. So I believe that we can come to those conclusions that there was a Jesus. He was sentenced to be crucified. He was crucified, and the Romans were quite good at that. I mean, this was something they had done uh, over and again. They knew how to get it done, and um, and he was buried. He was laid in a tomb. We actually know the name of the man's tomb uh, in which he was uh, buried, Joseph of Amarthea. He's the one who took over the body and uh, put it in a tomb. The question is, what happened next? Because remember, Jesus made a claim. That's going to happen. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm coming back. Now, it's clear from Jesus' 
skeptics, the Jewish leaders in his day, those who you know, didn't follow Jesus, that they understood his claims. In fact, they went to Pilate, uh, the New Testament tells us, they went to Pilate and asked him for a guard to be placed at the tomb. Why? Because they said this imposter is going to come, you know, uh, uh, this imposter claimed that he could come back from the dead. And so, you know, just to make sure that doesn't happen, let's put a guard there. And uh, Pilate ordered it, and so a guard was placed at the tomb, a, a seal, a Roman seal, which was probably like a, a string and some wax or something like that, placed over the, the rock of the tomb, so that if anybody broke that seal, they would be uh, in danger of uh, a Roman fury. And... Um, so this was given. This was done. Uh, so the Jews knew what Jesus meant when he when he kind of gave those cryptic responses as to who he was and and what was going to happen to him. But again, the question is, what happened next? Now, I, I believe the evidence. And again, I'm just talking about evidence. I think the evidence. And when I say evidence, I'm just talking about how we would look at any historical event in the past. You know, we look at eyewitness accounts, we look at um, how soon after those accounts, um, how soon after those events were the accounts written. Um, that's, how, that's how we judge any historical event um, and de- deem whether it occurred or not. So we look at the historical record, and I believe that anybody who's just being honest about their investigation would agree that there was some sort of issue about three days after the, um, the, the, excuse me, the crucifixion of Jesus. That's because the Jews recognized that the tomb was empty. We know that because they claimed, and this claim is still circulated among Jewish communities today, that the disciples of Jesus had stolen the body. Now, what's interesting about that claim is that it recognizes that there was an empty tomb on that first, you know, I guess Easter Day, uh, that day of resurrection. You know, why would you claim that someone had stolen something if it was still present? So the claim itself suggests, is highly suggestive of the fact that the tomb was empty and they knew it. They just had an explanation for it. And we don't have the body, you have the body. So what happened to the body? Of course, we know that the followers of Jesus um, and followers to this day claim that he arose from the dead. But let's, let's look at that last. Let's look at the other possibilities. We've got three major players in this whole drama as I see it. First, we have the Romans. The second, we have the Jews. And then thirdly, we have the followers, the disciples of Jesus. So let's look at the Romans, for example. Did they have means, motive, and opportunity to take the body, the body of Jesus. Uh, means, uh, motive, and opportunity are sort of the, the three, um, the corners of, of any kind of um, um, determination. Uh, you know, if, if a crime had been c- committed, who would have done it? Did they have the means to do it, the motive to do it, and the opportunity to do it? And so those are what an investigator would look for. Did the Romans have those? Well, they certainly had the means. They had the manpower to move a dead body. That was not an issue. Did they have the opportunity? Well, well, of course they did. They were they were there. They were at the tomb's entrance, uh, supposedly guarding it. So they had every opportunity. They had the ability to move it. Did they have for opportunity, or excuse me, did they have motive though? I can't say that they did really. I mean, at that point, all their motive was was just to see this whole thing closed and move on. Um, the the Romans had no. Uh, 
care really about Jesus or the Jews or anything like that. They were just a peacekeeping force, and that's all that they wanted. So I can't really argue that they have motive to take and to move the body. However, let's, let's say, you know what, they foresaw some possible issues, so they thought they'd secure the body, put it away just in case there was a problem because they had means and they had opportunity. The problem with that is um, as soon as the issues began between the followers of Jesus and the, the Jews, who the, the Jews did raise quite a stink about uh, the early disciples and about their claim that Jesus had uh, rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, they tried to get the Romans involved numerous times, um, and they were causing problems. And again, the Romans are a peacekeeping force there in first century Palestine. Um, if they had the body... All they could have, they could have easily settled the matter by just producing it by saying, "Hey, listen, guys, we took the body, we have it here. Come look at it, examine it. Cases closed. Everybody get back to work. To work, you know. I mean, they didn't care. All they cared for was about the peace. So if they had the body, they could have brought in the peace, which is why they were there, by just producing the body. But they didn't." And I think the reason why they didn't is because they didn't have the body. They weren't in possession of it. So that leaves us to the next party, and that's the Jews. Did the Jews have means to do it? I suppose they had the ability to move a body. Did they have opportunity? I suppose. I mean, they're they're the ones who convinced the the, um, pilot, the governor of Judea, they convinced him to to put a guard there, I suppose they could have had uh, the ability to convince him to have the guard look the other way or something like that. And so they, they could have had um, the means and the opportunity. Did they have the motive? Oh, you bet you they did. I mean, they were afraid that Jesus was going to, or his disciples were going to claim that he rose from the dead. And so they certainly had the motive to get the body replaced or, or at least secured somewhere. So the question then, did they? Did they take the body? Well, as I already pointed out, it's quite clear that from the very beginning, they didn't have it because they they began to claim right away that the disciples of Jesus have it. Well, the only way or the, the only reason why they would have done that is because they didn't have it. I mean, they would have given their right arms to have that body. Um, they would have thrown it on a cart and just drove it all over Jerusalem. And, and Christianity would have died right then and there. It would have been over. Case closed. They didn't have the body. Uh, they just didn't. And they knew the implications of, of that body. They knew what it meant. They knew the, the disciples of Jesus were going to make certain claims with, with, with the absence of a body. And so by keeping that body absent, they would have just made this mess deeper and deeper. And that's not something they were really um, had motive to do. So I don't believe it's logical to assume that the Jews took the body. There's no reason, certainly no logical reason to believe that they were in possession of the corpse of Jesus. Which leads us to the final group, and that is the now 11 disciples. By this time, Judas had already hanged himself, and so the number from 12 to 11, or the number had dwindled from 12 to 11, and there's just the 11 left. Did they take the body? Well, did they have opportunity? Not really. Um, the tomb was guarded, and uh, the guards were in position with the purpose of keeping the body there. Uh, these were probably trained. At the very least, they were temple police. The very most, they were Roman soldiers, and they were trained, 
if they were Roman soldiers, certainly they were trained to fight. Uh, they were prepared for a fight. They were probably informed that uh, there might be a grave robbery, and they needed to, uh, you know, to watch for this. So the disciples, I don't think they would have had opportunity to do it, not without a fight. And, of course, if there was a fight, there would have been record of a fight, and that would have quickly surfaced um, in Jewish and in Roman records. But it never did because there wasn't a fight. Did they have? Did the disciples have the means to do it? Yeah, I suppose they had the ability to carry. You know, eleven men could have carried off one one man, uh, one dead body. I mean, um, you know, that's obvious. And did they have the motive? Sure, absolutely, they had the motive. Um, uh, you know, Jesus had claimed on numerous occasions that he was going to rise from the dead. What better way to kind of end this guy's career than to make his words come true? You know, take the body and. Next couple of days, say, hi, he's alive, you know, just like he said he would. But um, there were some real problems with the idea that the disciples actually took the body. Uh, in Matthew, now Matthew was a tax collector, so he worked with the Romans. He was a Jewish man who worked with the Romans, and I think he probably had some insight. Matthew records in his gospel that uh, the Jews reported right away that uh, the disciples uh, had stolen the body while the guards slept. That, you know, I think to anybody, would be ludicrous. I mean, the guards wouldn't have slept. If these were Roman guards and they would have been caught sleeping on the job, sleeping at their post, uh, they would have been executed. That's as simple as that. And there's a great motivation to stay awake for you know your eight-hour shift or however long it lasted. So the fact that they could have stolen the body while the guard slept, I mean, that's, that's preposterous if you ask me. Uh, Eleven men tiptoeing around guards who were snoring soundly, moving a rock so heavy that the women were wondering how they could even get it moved, going in, taking the, the body of, of Jesus, tiptoeing around the guards, and, you know, and successfully stealing it while everybody slept. Again, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and what really doesn't make sense about that is of those remaining 11 men, at least 10 of them went to their deaths, some of them very horrific deaths, for still claiming that they had encountered a living Jesus. You know, a lot of people will die for something they believe to be true. Uh, if they believe something, they'll die for it. We see that all the time. You know, suicide bombers wearing suicide vests going in, blowing themselves up because they believe something to be true. But how many people will actually die for something that they know to be a lie? I mean, that's that's a stretch, if you ask me. To die for something that you know to be a lie. That these 10 or 11 men knew that Back in Matthew's closet was this rotting corpse, and they knew that, that these men would have gone through torturous uh, moments, uh, would have died painful deaths, knowing that all of this was a lie. That just doesn't add up. I mean, it just doesn't add up because these men didn't become rich. These men didn't come, become, I mean, they're famous in a sense that we know their names today, of course, but not in their day. I mean, they weren't famous. They weren't rich. They didn't have power. They, didn't, they weren't drawing the women. I mean, this, this Christianity in, in, in uh, late first century, early second century, uh, just, you know, it, it didn't produce anything for them. So to... To assume that they had stolen the body of Jesus, knew it was a lie, doesn't 
add up to reality. I, that's just too hard for me. One of those guys is going to crack under torture and say, listen, we've got the body. This is all a lie. But they didn't. They went to their deaths believing that Jesus was alive. So how did that come about? I mean, how, how do 11 people become so convinced of, of a fact? Um, now, there's been a number of theories raised over the years uh, about how Jesus was seen by his disciples uh, that would explain the empty tomb. Um, but those theories, those theories have a lot of problems. For example, there's one that was proposed called the swoon theory. It says that Jesus never really died on the cross. He just kind of swooned. He just kind of lapsed into unconsciousness. And, of course, they don't have modern technology. He didn't know if he was really dead or not. And they laid him in the empty tomb uh, alive. And, and, the, and the, the coolness of the tomb and the smell of the herbs that they had you know, wrapped him in had somehow revived him. And, and when he appeared to them, and, and they just thought he was resurrected. Well, that has some really serious problems if you think about it. I mean, this man Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life, uh, suffered under Roman crucifixion. I mean, no one survives Roman. He would be the first person ever to have survived a Roman crucifixion. You just don't do that. They know how to kill people. They wait till you're dead and to make sure they run a spear up through your side, puncturing your heart. Uh, you are dead when you come down from that cross, and, and they know that. But let's say they messed up, okay? This theory says that, you know, he was revived in the coldness of tomb. Somehow he gets up on feet that had been pierced through with nails. He moves a rock by himself. He overpowers or I don't know, surprises these guards, gets past them, and then he appears to his disciples and somehow convinces them all that he's doing really well. He's, you know, he's having a really good day. Um, there's no evidence that when he appeared to them that he was, you know, within an inch of his death or, uh, you know, that he was about to, ready to collapse or they need medical attention. You know, he just said, hey, give me some food. I'll, I'll show you that I'm alive. And he ate in front of them. He said, touch me. Um, so the fact that the idea, the theory, I should say, the idea, the theory that Jesus swooned, never really died, just doesn't add up in my estimation. Um, now again, there's other other theories out there. Um, one is that there was a hallucination that they just hallucinated. The disciples, uh, they wanted this so badly. They wanted to see Jesus alive so badly that their mind just kind of played a trick on them. Well, obviously, the main problem with that, in my opinion, is that. Um, to well, it, the, yeah, the main problem is that hallucinations don't generally affect a whole group of people. You know, you might have one or two people have hallucinations at the same time, and even those, it would be rare that they would all have the same hallucination. Let alone eleven people having the same hallucination at the same moment, so that they could compare notes and realize that the event had happened. I mean, how does that occur? But then the biggest problem of the hallucination theory is. The tomb is still. Um, the tomb is has, still has a body. It's not vacant. Uh, you know, an hallucination wouldn't explain why the tomb was empty because we we have an empty tomb, folks. There's nobody in there. Hallucination just doesn't add up. See, I think that the most logical conclusion that we can reach based on the evidence that we have, the only conclusion that meets all the criteria is that Jesus did in fact arise from the dead and walk out of the tomb on his own power. And that matches everything. 
It, it tells us why the Romans don't have the body. It tells us why the Jews don't have the body. It tells us why the disciples don't have the body. It tells us why the disciples were willing to go to their deaths saying that they had seen him, they had witnessed him alive. It explains all of that. Um, and so I believe that that conclusion, that that conclusion is logical. And that's why I'm a Christian. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why I'm a follower of his. Because it makes sense to me. It adds up. That theory that Jesus is alive, rose himself from the dead, is the most plausible theory. Now, that's not the only reason why I'm a Christian. There's another one. But that is the most pragmatic and I believe that's the one that needs to be looked at because it's something that I believe is demonstrable, at least to a, to a point. I mean, demonstrable as far as any uh, historical event can be. And that the record backs that conclusion up best. It's the best conclusion that fits all of the known data from that day. Now, I said there's another reason. But that's not for today. That's for the next podcast. Today, I just want to leave you with this thought. I just want to leave you with the idea that there is good evidence to put your faith in Jesus. There's good evidence to believe that he is who he claimed to be. And that's the first, the first of two reasons that I'm a Christian. Well, I want to thank you for joining me on this, my first podcast. This wraps it up. We've got one now in the books. Looking forward to the next. Looking forward to you coming back. Looking forward to any comments you want to leave. Um, don't forget to share this on your own social media platform, if you would. That'd be great. And uh, please subscribe to the, uh, to the podcast feed. And I do hope to see you back the next time. Thanks a lot. This is Dane Kramer from thethinkingchristian.us. 